When the sun finally shines on the west end of Glasgow, we should have known that this was going to be an absolute busker of an interview, but we didn't. We knew beforehand. Neil and Martin and I selected Charlie Nicholas because we were convinced that this was a guy, very famous now for Soccer Saturday, who'd been a footballer of tremendous creativity and quality, showing some of the skill and cheekiness and ambition that used to characterise the Scottish game and doesn't anymore. So what we wanted to do in this hour and 20 minutes that you're about to listen to was unearth not only what it was growing up in Mary Hill that made Charlie so gifted on the ball and able to do things that others weren't able to do, what made him such an instinctive scorer, who steered him. But we wanted to, to know about his life experiences The people who crop up in this, you'd probably expect. George Graham pops up, Graham Ricks, Liam Brady, Danny McGrain at great length. If you're a Celtic fan, I'm an Aberdeen fan, and Charlie's time at Pataudry was glorious, but if you're a Celtic fan, Danny McGrain's role in Charlie's life will enchant you. But Steve Burtonshaw crops up, John Cartwright crops up, people you wouldn't have expected. It's possible that you wouldn't have expected Ron Atkinson's role over the dinner table in Charlie's decision-making process. He talks with love about football because, like me, he's still head over heels in love with the beauty of this game. If you've come out of this podcast interview without thinking more about Charlie as a man of football, I'll be deeply surprised. Sit back, get on your running machine, (laughs) turn the engine, commute to work, whatever it is you do, listen to it, and just soak this up. One of the best, most enjoyable interviews I've ever been lucky enough to have. What anybody who's listened to these podcasts before, Charlie, knows is that I'm a little bit overpassionate about football. I get <laughs> kind of boyish. I don't look like a boy anymore, but football still um, completely makes me a romantic. I'm head over heels in love with it. and. Moving to Spain has fueled that a little bit, yeah. but there's there's no question in my eyes that even before you made the best decision of your life and became a dandy <laughs> for a couple of years and won Aberdeen a couple of trophies, watching you, I think particularly at Celtic in the first phase, but in some of the successes you had in England with Arsenal, made me feel the same way as I now feel about some of the players that I admire in Spain, mm-hmm. because it, it it was about natural skill, really brilliant natural skill and cheek and creativity and something that made us all really excited to watch football. So I'm going to start this podcast by asking you about a mystery, Mm -hmm. a detective mystery, and it's the mystery of Johan Cruyff's shirt. As a non-Celtic fan, one of the first performances of yours that really enraptured me was you not quite single-handedly putting Ajax, Johan Cruyff playing for Ajax out of Europe, but I believe our last podcast with David Moyes, and he made a grab for Johan Cruyff's shirt yeah. and got, didn't get near it. So who got it, you or George McCluskey, or who got Cruyff's shirt in 1982 when Ajax were knocked out of the European Cup? I'll start the story with the format of who got it, and it was George Toby McCluskey. Ah. As you recall, I mean, he's my all-time favourite European player, Johan Cruyff too. When I was young and getting brought up in the Celtic tradition, which was about being creative, and or you went the other way, just physically you were trying to fit into a system. And I never really understood systems. I just wanted to play the way I seen people. So ultimate hero was Douglas. And then overall, you look at the foreign players who 
in the old days of my concept, we only got, sometimes got the one draw. So you go home and away, and it could be Juventus, could be Ajax, could be something pretty easy. Uh, so the concept of Europe was, all you ever did was read about these guys in magazines. Mm. And Cruyff was the one that always caught my attention. Uh, skinny, unpredictable, the Cruyff turn. I love footballers who have been, who have created something different in football. It makes me fall back my chair and say, wow. You think sometimes it's a boyish, a stupid thing to still be in love with the game. I'm like that. I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't like everybody coming up to my restaurant and having to talk about football because no. I do it for a living. But when I talk about people like me who love the game so much, you do tend to fall back into your, your youth. But with that time with Cruyff, they absolutely battered us at Glasgow Celtic. And we drew 2-2 in the first leg. Cruyff was genius that night because he just came in and kept feeding it to Jesper Olsen. I was getting marked by Jan Moby, later of Liverpool. Vandenberg was a big player at the time for them. And everything we did, we couldn't get to him quick enough. And Danny McGrain was, our, for me, the greatest Celtic player in my lifetime. Danny had started to say, we have to try and make inroads. So we, we got away from Glasgow at home, 2-2, and we thought, it's never going to happen. And Billy McNeil wasn't a great tactician. A great man, Caesar himself. Yeah. But he simply said a few things to us going out at the old stadium in Amsterdam. Was, we're already out, so go for it. Why not go for it? And of course, I've scored and George McCluskey scores later on. But if you remember, Graham Sinclair was one of your, your guys and he had nailed Johan Cruyff on a few occasions. <laughs> so Johan, because his age, eventually had enough. He, he couldn't take any more kicking. He, he, at this stage, he's 37, 38. He's 37, he? 38. But I mean, Graham Sinclair was just specifically there to destroy him. And what a soft gentleman he is actually off the pitch. But he couldn't believe that he actually was getting the grace to behold one of the greatest of all time. Anyway, he nailed him. He gets taken off about 15, 20 minutes to go. And we sneak through. But as you go round the old inside of the stadium, Johan Cruyff is on a treatment table. Oh, yeah. And I went by and I heard Nicholas getting shouted. And I, I kind of paused. So I put my head back round and I just got, well played. It was, you played really well. Uh, congratulations, good luck. The Ajax shirt came away. So I got the Ajax shirt and put it down my Celtic top and slowly went in. And I was probably last in, but this time most of the boys were in the shower. And of course, everybody's who got it, who got it, who got it? And there was a few quiet. I was quiet, ducked in my bag. And Danny McGrain looked at me and went, and I went, clocked that. that. Right, thumbs up, <laughs> wink, uh, thinking I've got it. And then, of course, when we, we got back to the hotel, George showed the number 14. And I opened mine's up just to clarify, and it was like 32 or something like that. It was just a known number. But it was just the fact that I got a word. He said a word was more than enough. That was worth for him to seek you out and say well played. Well, I don't think he was seeking me out. I think it was just one of those moments when I'm by and for him to acknowledge. And I think he was always, maybe this is part of the greatness of what I and probably you love about Barcelona, we talk about humility, is that there is a way to lose. And the concept of how he's always had that. Mm -hmm. From then, I also always said to myself, I'll never ever admit, even if there's a better one, that there's a better one in him because of the way that he went about the business. He is an extraordinary man. It's been a privilege of being over there, sent by UEFA, where when they were celebrating 50 years, I think, the European Cup, they sent me to his house. We went in there. And amongst, it was about 45-minute interview. And one of the things was he still contends, absolutely, that it wasn't any big deal to lose the World Cup final because it showed the world a brand of football that because we didn't have wall-to-wall -wall television then, there was no YouTube, no internet, that the world could learn about how that style was attractive, that people could copy it. 
maybe he's kidding himself one, but all these years later, he still believed that the greater good of football had been served even by losing, which I think is an extraordinary statement. Like you might have found somebody saying afterwards, we should have won, or Germany were lucky, or mm. the, you know, the Ferrari in the German press about the wives in our social before the final affected us, whatever. Pound for pound, he's the most important man football's ever had, if you think about him as a director, a coach, and a footballer. And I'm still impacted by him as much as you are now. Mm -hmm. I still find him a fascination. Every documentary or anything mm -hmm. comes on and I hear that he's on it, I have to listen. And going way back when they do the greatest teams ever now, and Ajax is on, and how his other teammates talk about him, that he's such a strong influence, even at 23, 24, he had a strong influence to say, no, we have to play this way, and I'll sacrifice something if I have to, but it has to be done for the right reasons. And to keep portraying that without ever winning the greatest prize ever and to be so close to it. The European Cup at that time was as big as it probably ever was for any Champions League is massive now, you know, mm. but in a different financial package and everything. But for World Cup and for the way that the Dutch team had this philosophy that was changing the dynamics of European football, it was extraordinary. I think he called you out when he was on the treatment table for another reason too, because you kind of underplayed the goal. And I wouldn't mind just walking through your goal. <laughs> he scored in both legs. Your opening goal was a Gem, an absolute gem, describe it. We were doing a warm-up and it was the old wooden frame goalpost. And I can't remember all the Ajax team's names now, uh, and the keeper in particular. But when we do warm-ups, I always try to take myself with Pat Bonner, who was our goalkeeper. Mm -hmm. The last five minutes of a warm-up or so, I would always try and do something different, bending the ball or outside of my foot. And I was very two-footed. A lot of people didn't actually really notice it, but I was actually a better striker the ball with my left when I finished. I worked in that, particularly just before we went on the field. And we were doing some bits and pieces, and I was a, a chip packy a couple of times. And goalkeepers don't take it pleasantly. <laughs> and he says to me, this is on tonight. He said, you could chip this goalkeeper, he's not very tall. It's definitely on tonight. It, it's actually quite a similar goal to Archie Gemmels against Holland in the World Cup. McGarvey was in a little bit of trouble, as Frank always was. He, he was off, looked as if he was spinning and drilling for oil because he, he was spinning, spinning. No one could read where he was going to pass or whatever. But he was a great partner for me because he was a grafter. And it just came away in tight situations. And I, I was more European that way. I was, the challenge of a tighter situation was something that I always thought the Europeans had that we didn't. And I used to particularly work in that in training. There was a couple of little nutmegs in there, a bit similar to Archie Gamble, and then suddenly I was in, about 18-yard box. I could just glance and see the keeper just coming into my vision. And as he did, I just chipped it with my left foot. And as soon as I hit it, I knew it was in. And I just started running and didn't look at the ball. I already knew it was over him. And it was a punt. It was an old terrace, and it had no steps, just smooth, but coming down the hill. And there was one Celtic fan who did the aeroplane. <laughs> Aeroplane run all the way down, and he went in the angled run by the time I got to the corner, and I, I just saluted him. That's probably the greatest goal I've ever scored. Uh, not a lot of people have seen it because of Dutch TV. It was only on Dutch TV, and having seen it, you know, I'll swear that Cruyff recognised a wee touch of genius because you've gone across at least four players, taken a back heel into your stride, cut left past another defender, and as you say, left foot to the keeper's top right hand corner. It's absolutely glorious. You've inspired me to ask you something that fascinates me because in life people talk about nature and nurture. Are you born aware? Are you taught about? Mm -hmm. At what stage did you realise how comfortable you were with the ball? And, and was it just something you went, oh my God, look what I can do with the ball? Or did somebody tell you what to do? No, I kind of practised. I, I was a bored child because I, I just wanted the ball in a pair of boots. My dad and my mum tried their best to obviously supply that. Hard working class, uh, Mary Hall. I was born in the city in Glasgow. 
But we moved there when we were four because it was renovations. So we moved up to Mary Hill. One of my great friends was James Duffy, who never quite made it at Celtic, but had a half-decent career in Scotland. Now Morton manager. Elegant player. Elegant he was a very, but James was very tough. And James actually became like my bodyguard in a way because I always played with older guys. James was three years older and I always played with older guys. They loved to kick me because mm. I was more skillful than them. And James was always encouraged me to say, don't ever give that up. Don't give it up. So I would go and practice on my own and, and my little playpen and, and try little things because that's how I got overboard them. Kids find other reasons to do it, but that's how I got mine. The more they kicked me, the more I realised I had to, in quick situations and tight situations, be able to move myself yeah. from getting hit. It took me a lot of bruises and a lot of cuts to eventually get through that, that phase. After about a year or so of playing with these older guys, I could move myself very quickly in and out of situations with only just getting a trip. Or I think it was really that upbringing. Are we talking about Red Blazer? Are we talking about streets? Are we talking about we're talking about, we're talking about everything. We're talking about Red Ash on grass, but we weren't allowed in this grass pitch because they used to call them the untouchables, used to come and chase us. And, and <laughs> we were too young to get the nick, but they would just run us off. There was always somebody complaining. Uh -huh. But it was typical of work, working class areas. Because they had the bat of grass, it was so precious to them. I mean, who'd let football on grass <laughs> exactly. for heaven's sake? I mean, get off that grass with you with that round thing. Exactly. So, Stupid, that'll never work. So we, we used to jib ourselves on, as we would say, get ourselves on there, yeah. and then wait in the vans coming round, and we'd all flee. They, they knew where we lived, so it wasn't a hassle. You know, this is something that, that I think anybody of, we're a similar age, although we don't look at it. In Scotland, we grew up not only playing like that, all of us, every minute, every space, but we watched players who could do the things you're, I mean, presumably, like me, you'd have grown up knowing immediately about Willie Henderson or Jimmy Johnson, and mm -hmm. you played with Gordon Strachan, who could do things that yeah. are similar to what you're describing there. But as I grew into journalism and, and travelled Europe, it seemed to be the Dutch were really keen on this street football, and Bergkamp talks this day about exactly what you said, having to know about space, having the tricks, to avoid having your legs battered on cobblestones mm -hmm. or whatever. So you, you learn your tricks like that, but you leave it behind. And you led me to something I wanted to ask you anyway, because I go and watch Spanish football every, every weekend. And one of the guys who's obviously impacted me most would be Messi yep. and Iniesta. And now I'm conscious that although I truly despise what Seth Blatter's done with football while he's been in charge, I'm not a hypocrite. During his mandate, Players of your size and stature and ability have been protected, mm -hmm. whereas okay, it was worse than the 70s, but you weren't in no. the 80s, I don't think. What was it like as a striker when you've gone off the streets, there's a referee, there are cameras. Yeah. Were you still booted from pillar to post yeah. at, at Celtic and then at Arsenal? Yeah, I, I was. I, I think maybe in a way, a lesser extent at Arsenal. Football in England was going through a strange change from the long ball percentage football, where I think the guy Charles Hughes and... Others were having a big influence. John Cartwright, who eventually came to Arsenal, which was an absolute disaster for me. But the Celtic thing was different, I think, in, in a way, because at that time, Aberdeen were becoming very strong. We had lots of good players. But when I was 16 and, and under-18s at Celtic, Aberdeen had a great under-18s under team. Some of them were in the under-18 national team with me. The D United were the same. Rangers were the left-behinds. But the three of us as groups, we had an absolute great batch of proper Talented footballers, good physical footballers. There was lots of combinations. So it was a really, really bright future at that time. We were all kind of competing against each other at under 18 in the reserves. I remember playing Aberdeen reserves and Billy McNeil and the whole gang coming up with us. And it was a two-legged Fair League Cup final. And Aberdeen beat us, I think they beat us 3-0, 3-1 in Pataudry. And Fergie was in the press the next day saying it was a great game. 
but how his boys are much better than us. And we came back and Fergie came down for the second leg and Billy was there because they, they two were competitive against each other, as you well know. Having all their lives. Yeah, absolutely. And we beat them 5-1 to win the cup. That competition was there from under-18s. We all had Aberdeen boys and the United boys. So all we were doing was trying to move our game on to a level that was always trying to make you better mm -hmm. than what you know the, the lads at John Hewitt was. Or, you know, the lads at Dundee United was Ralph Millen and Richard Goff was coming through, Morris Malpass. So all that intensity of finding the route to how you played and getting kicked in training. Billy McNeil would purposely put me against Roddy McDonald, who was a big brute, a six foot two centre half who could header the ball further than he could kick it, but he could kick me just as far. <laughs> so he knew if I could accept that and take it, yeah. as soon as I went into the first team, I'd you, be ready. You got so much kicking that it was imperative that you got used to it on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. I used to have shin guards in my, in my calves. I was the first one to ever do it. You, see, to... you mean that, don't you? Yeah. You're not joking. No, honestly, I, I, I got to the stage that I didn't. my shin pads are reverted to the back of my legs because you were allowed to tackle from behind then. And that's where I was getting all, all my, my batterings from. Uh, if you get somebody face up, it wasn't an issue for me. If I get kicked, I get kicked. You, you take can also the see it coming to an extent. Well, you do, because, because well, you're not waiting, because I'm, I'm usually going left or right. So the angle of the challenge doesn't really get me full on. We had to start working that out, uh, how I was going to do that. And Danny McGrain was kind of my guru. I was speaking to him about it, and it wasn't like the old plastic shin, but it was like a cloth with just a little bit of, Remember you know, like the, the fish tails yeah, you yeah. get. They were a little bit heavy, but they weren't overly protected. But I just put them back to front, round, round to my calf, and they helped protect me a little bit. Those little things like that work, but again, the Gleesh was probably the best that I ever seen taking out your feet and spinning. George McCluskey was really, really good yeah. at it. George was a wee bit more timid. Kenny could take the kick, but Kenny could always kick you back. I never really could get that philosophy in my head because my timing was typical striker. I couldn't do it. I, was just, I wasn't tough enough. Kenny was, and George was more timid than me, so he didn't always like the physical side, but he was brilliant at it. So I kind of worked away at that for a number of seasons to get it right. See, I remember bumped into him at the golf course a week ago, Neil Cooper. All right. Alec, in one game when you were the brilliant young star at Celtic, sent Neil, wound him up all week, didn't he? Yeah, Famously he did, to yeah. say, get that challenge, let's get that challenge, let's. And Neil is a doer. <laughs> I mean, he was a very, very, very good footballer. I think that's underestimated too. And then I think a Youth World Cup, he was player of the tournament. But mm -hmm. that day he went for you like a train. Now, and, and put you up in the air within about five or six seconds of the kick yeah. would, it, would mm -hmm. it be? Yeah. Now, things like that, not that single incident, that must have driven you to distraction. It, it wasn't pleasant. The crazy thing was it happened to, to me the week before. We played St Mirren at home and uh, we took kick-off. And I was never one for turning and passing it back. If you gave me the ball in front of me, which kick-off is about, I want to go forward. If I, if I can't go forward, then I'm looking for David Proven on my right or Tommy Burns on my left. What's the point of passing it back 40 yards when you already have it in the halfway line? Do you do that if you're attacking? So I never believed in that. I hear that. the echoes of Barcelona and I hear the echoes of Kripen. <laughs> well, I'm full of I just thought, if you're giving me the ball and you're asking me to pass it back 40 yards, why are you giving me the ball? Speak to John Cartwright. <laughs> I'm happy with that. It's just never got to me. So little Lex Richardson was the culprit for St Mirren, who was a very experienced player. And he came diving in and, and my, my bag of tricks was, I love nutmegs. And uh, I nutmegged him and he took me out. And he took me out and he said, you better not do that again. And I thought, I will do it again. <laughs> but the fact is, he made a statement of intention to me to say, if you try and take the mickey out of me, I'll hit you. But I said, well, it was only five seconds into the game, so it wasn't as if I'd been taking the mickey out of you. He just had it in his head. He was going to nail me if he could. And of course, the following week against Aberdeen, which was an enormous game, 
because mm. Aberdeen were magical at coming and getting results in Glasgow but in, and Fergie knew how to play the crowd he knew how to play I'm not saying he knew how to play us but he knew where were weaknesses were and he was very very bright that was a different one altogether because this was a real big 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 game because it was us two that really Dundee United were very good but Aberdeen and Celtic were the best two teams in the country and uh, when that hit me like that and there was no action no yellow card no nothing it's quite dramatic because the boys were very quickly onto it because they'd seen it the week before and of course Maguru Danny McGrain was over referee and Neil was still kicking me 30 minutes later and still hadn't been yellow carded and that's what gets into your head and all of a sudden Aberdeen score mm. a little petted lip comes out of it and you're like <laughs> injustice and you know this is unfair and I think after that match Billy had went mad to the media saying that I don't get any protection and it's an absolute joke if we want to hound them out of the Scottish game made a statement on that didn't make any difference really because it's the way Scottish football was at the time but it, it did get to me but in a strange way I interviewed Alex Ferguson I sat down last year in Glasgow and we still talk about it mm. and when he was my manager at the World Cup in 86 we, we spoke about it and I don't bear any grudges I'm not a really that type of character but in a strange way the fact that you mention it tells me there was something within me that terrified them, that they had to go to that cost, they do it. So it's the stupidest and funniest way around to give them a compliment, but I'll take it as that. That's very grown up, I have to say. You stressed that there was a slight difference at Arsenal, or in English football. Was yeah. that because the refereeing was different? Was that because Arsenal uh, weren't for meddling with? Was that because increasingly you had a, a Toddy Adams or you had a you know, Roe Castle by your side. Or, or what was the difference? No, the difference then? was style. The style of play. Arsenal were a back-to-front football team. I wasn't a back-to-front footballer. David Leary, when Tony Adams came in the team, before him we bought Tommy Cate and God rest him, who was going to be a big star at Manchester City. Lovely pass for the ball. Great left foot. Kerry Sansom, left back. Viv Anderson hadn't arrived at the time. Pat Jennings in goal. Graham Ricks. Absolutely magnificent footballer. Wonderful footballer. Magic talent. <clears throat> Tony Woodcock, my partner up front. And Davy Rocky Rocastle, who was my wee pal when he came in the team. So we had lovely footballers, but we would train five days a week with Don Howe, who's as good a coach as I've ever worked with. Don, who'd just taken over from Neil, who'd signed you, right? Yeah. As good a coach I've ever worked with. Very clever man, eh? Very, and lovely man. Yeah. But as soon as it came to picking the team on a Saturday, the tactics were gone, the coaching was gone. It was security at the back, and then get it and knock it forward and play from there. Most of my time, my interest in football was... I like to come to feet. I wasn't quick over 30 yards, but I was quick over 5, 10 yards. So that would get me a couple of yards if I wanted to pivot into the corners. As us Scots were taught to start inside to work outside, the Europeans start wider to come inside, and that's what makes them the geniuses and us the clowns. But to take it back to that, I like to come to feet to get it in and then link up with, with midfield players. I spent 60 minutes most games watching the ball fly over my head, back and forward. <clears throat> looking for a second ball, looking for a knockdown, little but nothing to feet. Anything piecewise, just little pieces, yeah. and I had to, I had to live off Scrap. a starvation diet. Whereas at Celtic, they they overfed me, because they wanted to get them on the ball, get them on the ball. Whereas at Arsenal, they don't have that. They just go get the ball forward, get it out of your defence, and get it up there, because they were trying to build again the club, and I could understand that. But you can't have seven international footballers, and you don't have a balance, and you don't have a a, a shape that you work on to take you to where the international footballers want to be, which is a going one football match, not not want to lose football matches. For about 18 months of that, two years, it was a real difficult bite in my lip time. I couldn't work in that environment. But after about 18 months, 
We brought in Paul Mariner and he dropped me to the so-called number 10 position. We didn't have the triangles or Christmas tree formations in, but it was a little triangle that I played behind. And it worked a treat for about three, four months. And we were top of the league after about seven, eight games. We'd just beaten Liverpool. And I spoke to King Kenny, the Gleish, after the game. And he says, User, that's the best user I've been for a long time. And you're playing in the right position now. We then played next two games and we lost them. I got dropped. I got dropped out and then he went back to his philosophy again. And that was just a hardship of realising, but it was nothing else to do other than that's the style of play Arsenal wanted and they would not change it until eventually Wenger came in. The Arsenal experience, I, I think, has been overly focused on the fact that there was a deluge of goals for you at Celtic and you were a player in command of his surroundings and you were adored. And like Larson subsequently at Celtic, the ball was given to Larson when he moved because his movement was brilliant. The ball was given to you because they knew that you would take it, hold it, and that you would do something with it. And at Arsenal, it was almost like, if you want a Charlie Nicholas, why are you playing like this? And if you're playing like this, why have you bought Charlie Nicholas? It seems to me. But there were some really fantastic moments. I remember rooting for you as a Scot, waiting for them to understand the, the <laughs> talent that they bought. And I look back on it and I see... Runs of games where you'd maybe beat sequ- and you'd score sequentially against Liverpool beating them, winning 1-0 at Man United, mm-hmm. back against Jesper Olsen, mm-hmm. scoring against QPR the next week, three big games in a row, you're scoring all the time, feeling this is it, it's going to take off. But looking at the quality of the side around you and, and thinking it wasn't that brilliant an 11 or, or a 14 maybe, as well as a negative tactics, and you came to Arsenal at a time that wasn't meant for you and you could yeah. have fitted and played in the Wenger era, for example. Mm-hmm. I, I think in Bergkamp's role or Ian Wright's role. I love Arsenal. I'm more passionate about Arsenal than any other club because they treated me well. They were great people. It was the wrong choice at the wrong time. Liverpool, Spurs, Man United, Inter Milan were all there for me. I spoke to Liverpool a few occasions. Kenny and Sunis were kept and you have to come, you're perfect for us. Brilliant. Kerry says, you'll take over my position. Uh, and I said, no, I won't, because you'll play another four or five seasons. That's an incredible statement. Mm-hmm. It was, and it was mind-blowing to hear the King of Kings saying, saying that to me. But uh, I got very close to him and soonest, and they kept saying to me, no, you'll be fine, you'll be fine, you'll fit in. You mm-hmm. won't be sitting on the bench like a lot of Liverpool signers do. But I, I couldn't trust that. I could trust my ability, but I couldn't trust the prospect that I might have to sit on the bench. When at 21, I'm, I just want out. Just, I just want to play. Where can I play? I didn't want to go to Milan because I think the, the game would have been too defensive and too structured for me at 21. No doubt. Also, the lifestyle thing would have been quite a turnaround for me because I'm, you know, I'm a Glasgow social boy. And at 21 then, I still wanted to have a bit of a life. It's a very brutal league still. It's a really brutal league. It, it was. And there were so many talented technical players that had gone there and struggled. Yeah. And I thought, no, if, if it does happen, maybe four, five years down the line, fair yeah. enough. Yeah when you're big enough to take it. but So for me, it was always going to be England. I met Man United, who I did think at first I probably would be drawn to. My dad was in the newspaper industry, worked at Express most of his life, and then he got paid off, and he was in between jobs, and they were offered a role in Manchester. And my dad said, maybe there's something significant. Yeah. That you, would, you will eventually move to Manchester. But I didn't particularly like Ron Atkinson. Without going over the score, I'm applauding deliberately because all... Uh flashing no substance, a man that I don't have a lot of admiration for and you wouldn't have enjoyed playing for. Well, no, I, 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 I doubt it. I mean, he wasn't a particularly good conversationist because it was very much about him. <laughs> but we were sitting with Martin Edwards 
go for a steak dinner and we were an international team and Jock Steen had let me go for dinner with him. It was steak and chips. The three steak and chips came. Ron went into his shirt and messed about with something and then brought this kind of medallion out. I thought, what's he got a knife and fork in there or something? I mean, what What it was, he'd finished his dinner and he had a little, it was like a little cross thing, but he had a button at the top of it and this toothpick came out. And he started scraping his teeth. And I thought, oh my God, am I seriously? I could not play for a man like you. No. That's absolutely ridiculous. And I could not wait to get out of the restaurant to get away. But Martin Edwards had to take me back. So it was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever seen in my life. So out of kilter with a club built by Matt Busby. So out of kilter with a club that then later supported Alex Ferguson when he needed time mm -hmm. to, to show that intelligence and, and brilliance. And unfortunately, a colleague of ours... Terry Gibson, a fantastic lad, mm -hmm. ended up playing for Ron and found him deceitful and a coward mm -hmm. and addicted to sunbeds during training sessions. When well, he he's addicted. I think Ron was probably addicted to himself in many ways and that addiction was that whatever he said went. Now, I, I know a lot of guys who work with him who think he's a really nice guy, good character and some are very complimentary. I take people as a fine and that one meeting I had with, with Ron, it was all about Ron. That's one choice that in that moment was a good choice to make because it, the click probably wouldn't have been there and you were put off him. But if, if I'm not wrong, you went to Danny. Danny McGrain, apart from an unbelievable defender, great reader of the game. And in an era when we were chock full of world-class players, yeah. he was the one in world selects. People kept saying, well, if there's a Scottish player outside Douglas, who gets in a world 11. It's Danny McGrain. Mm -hmm. At least until his injury, which was so... You know, so diff difficult to debilitate. But you went to him for advice, if I'm not wrong. You actually said, or he came to you and... Well... Is that right or am I wrong? No, no, you're, you're right in, in the substance of it, but it started away before that. When I was 16 and I was a car mechanic, I was ready to do my qualifications at high school. I had no real interest in school. I'd lost the will to be educated in that framework because at that time there was a small recession in, in Scotland again and people were struggling for jobs. And at the time, it was like, if any of the kids can go and get anything at all in the market, if you can get a trade. So fortunately, one of my teammates at Celtic Boys Club was a guy called Tommy Coakley, whose dad was a boxing promoter with Jim Watt. And they owned Citroen Franchise in George's Cross. And Eddie had said to me after training one night, look, I've got a position if you want to join us. And I said to my mum, and she was panicking because football was, was probably not a prospect. Yeah. 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 Whereas my dad was probably a bit more inclined to believe that it was there and uh, my mum says no I want you to take it so I went with my mum's decision mm -hmm. on that I, I didn't turn up for my my O levels at that time but at that, sta at that stage in the Scottish education system you could get out of school at about 15 couldn't you yeah I have a birthday right at the turn of new year on 30th yeah. of December so I'm in, in between that awkward time but uh, anyway the Celtic players used to come in and get some citrons and things and then eventually I trained two nights a week and then eventually I was asked within four months by Billy McNeil who's just taken over from Jock to come in and do a two-week trial. So Eddie Coakley, my boss, had said, get in there. Yeah. We'll give you the two weeks off. On you go. So on the second day I was there, Danny McGrain came in and I was like, a bit shaky with Danny. <laughs> Understandably. Uh, and he says, where do, you, where do you come from? I says, oh, Maryhill Barracks. He said, I pass by there every morning. How do you get in? And I said, oh, I get the bus, I get the 61, and then I get, and I walk around the back, I can jump off, get the 64. He said, well, if I'm going by at such and such, is that too late for you to come in? Now, I later joined the ground staff, but I wasn't on the ground staff for that two weeks, although I did a little bit of work after training. So Danny used to bring me in, which I remember waiting, thinking, he'll forget that I'm here. And I'm sitting outside this wee pub called The Politician, which is right almost at the barracks entrance. 
and all my mates are going by and they're, you know, all right, wee man, what, what are you waiting on? What are you waiting on? I'm like, <laughs> how'd you say it? Danny McGroon. What? And sure enough, Danny turns up. Fantastic. In you come, and he picked me up every day I was there. So ever since that, Danny always picked me up, and then there was one time Danny took me back to his house with a bit of lunch, and he showed me some footage of Douglas and him. Mm. Oh, I just thought it was the most brilliantest thing I'd and I, I remember sitting there at night trying to work out, why did he show me that? There must be a reason he showed me that. So I don't like keeping too many things in. I like to get it out. So I asked him the next day, why, why the hell did you show me that? And he says, because I think you're ready for it. Now, I didn't know later on, but David Proben, my, my great pilot's guy, later tells me that when Celtic were struggling getting bad results and I was in the reserve team, they were having team meetings and Billy McNeil was saying, to George McCluskey in front of me, it's not good enough, it's not good enough. And he would say to Danny, his team captain, what have you got to say? He said, the solution is next door. He's staring you in the face, Whoa. and I don't know why you don't get him in. And I didn't, I wasn't aware of this, but for, this went on for, by all accounts, four or five months. So Danny became my kind of guru, and whenever I had anything to ask, he was protocol. Full of experience, level-headed, Celtic tunes through, <laughs> unbeknownst to you, saying the to the manager, a legend yeah. himself, yeah. Play how the this hell fella. he never left Celtic because everybody wanted him. Yeah. Diabetes, fractured skill, yeah. broken shin. I, I watched him coming back from the broken ankle and played Rangers reserves. John McDonald's an up-and-coming star at Rangers and they beat us 7-1. Me and my boys in the ground staff, we were all Danny McGrain fanatics. And we were, the palms of our hands were all sweating, worrying about him. And within three months, he was back in the team, back to his brilliant best. He was the most remarkable individual. Have I described it correctly? Because I'm describing my, my growing up memories of him that it was about his um, tackling, his judgment, his reading of situations. It felt to me, you know, principally I admired him more for, for Scotland than for Celtic, but mm -hmm. it felt like he was one of these defenders who could change the tone or tempo of a game because he'd break up what seemed to be floods of attacks, take it, give it to somebody, and suddenly you know, a 10-second gap might become a 30-second gap when you were on the attack. And if you were being flooded before, then it stopped. He, he seemed to be an enormous football man beyond... You wouldn't even classify him as a fullback. No. He seemed to be more to him he was far. He was far more than that. He was, he was very much an all-rounder. Even when he got older, he eventually had Davy Proben, who was a great working winger. Great cross of the ball, Davy supplied a lot of goals for me. But Davy all liked to do his shift coming back. And it was quite unusual to get that. Mm -hmm. Everybody else was flicks. I and, do the clever and, things. Yeah, and one-twos. Yeah. But David did the other side, the hard jazz, as we called it. So he was brilliant for Danny and that, but they two never really always got on. They would fall out all the time. Danny would say, yeah, you've done really well, but he would fall out with you just as quick. <laughs> so, you know, it was a reality of standard of where yeah. he played. And at Scotland, at one stage, he was the best left-back we had. And every other right-back only got in because he could play left-back. So... Uh, he was the most amazing character, Danny, and to still be floating about for me is, 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 is something to achieve. But I just find that there's certain glories. You know, like we, we all want to meet heroes. Remember listening to Kenny Glush's first ever voice interview? I thought, that doesn't sound like my hero. It just sounded weird. Lots of big-name people that I've, I've met in my life, John McEnroe, who I loved as a sportsman, but standing up and those, and then you meet real greats, the Beckenbars and all these type of people, uh, Cruyffs. But Danny McGrain is right up there with anybody I've ever met. Well, you've given me a nice little gap here to admit that you know, I started in hospital Radio Paisley when a pal of mine, Damon Quigley, who sadly died very, very young, Celtic fanatic, said, come and do hospital Radio Paisley. And I did just as soon as leaving uni. And one day out of cheek, uh, I was an Aberdeen fan not long. I mean, a couple of months after you joined Aberdeen, I wrote to the club and said, listen, I'd like to interview 
Tyneckless for Hospital Radio Paisley. And somehow or another, that got translated into <laughs> a worthwhile project for you and the club to OK. And you breezed into it. It's not picking you up outside the barracks, but you breezed into the reception at Pataudry. Off the back of training, young and full of energy, and you just turned our club into a football playing side again. And uh, it walked up to me with my little tiny tape recorder. All right, Gray. And I thought, I'm made. That's me for life. <laughs> if I never do another interview. The patients around the Paisley and Renfrewshire area, they got a beauty of an interview that day. So that, <laughs> that's my equivalent of meeting a hero. I'm glad Danny's been talked about in that way because as well as wanting to talk to the audience in this podcast about you beyond your television personality because for mm -hmm. younger people, yeah. they see you as a star of Soccer Saturday. And it's good to talk about Danny and explain to people, not just the footballer, but the man too. And if we're getting a little bit romantic about the past, can I tease out a little bit about life at Highbury, the stadium from you? Because I've cheated because before we turned the tape on, I checked that you felt the same way and you do. When I first came there as a reporter, having been lucky enough that Glasgow Walter Smith had you know, taken me into the inside of Ibrox and had lunch there, Tommy Burns had shown me around Parkhead and because we'd travelled to Turin together to study events and he came back, I saw his office, I saw Celtic from the inside, which is a real privilege and a hand mm -hmm. in too. But the first time I saw Highbury, um, it installed itself as my second favourite stadium after Pataudry because it, it struck me as like the Downton Abbey of football. It was just aristocratic. And I'd like to know what it felt like moving there, what, it, what the standards were like at Highbury, the stadium, what your experiences were there. The tribute to Highbury for me wasn't just in the fact that it was a cranky old stadium where the clock end in particular and the aspect that it only took 37, 38,000 people. But there was something extraordinary about it. And I think it adds to it because at Arsenal, we never trained there. We only trained there on a Friday. I find that incredibly weird because when I went to Celtic Park, going to get changed. We'd all have to get in, not of our own cars, but we'd share cars up to Barrafield for training mm -hmm. facility, which was one mile up the road. And we were covered in mud coming back in these cars. Most ridiculous thing, why? I mean, surely we must have a team bus or something that takes us up and back. All when we were filthy, dirty, and it was pouring through the heavens in Glasgow as it always was, some of us would run down the road. Because I, I was a boy and I used to train up there with Celtic Boys Club, I used to jump on the bus. It's only two stops, the 64. And my granny actually stayed across the road. So I kind of knew the bus drivers and everything. So we would be running along, there was about seven or eight of us, and we've all got our metal studs on. <laughs> and I'd jump on, I'd wave the bus, and they'd go, oh, how you doing, boys, all right? And just drop us off the bottom of Kerrydale Street. That's the type of things I always found were adaptable. I've spoken to Niesta and Messi and Xavi, and I can guarantee they never, <laughs> never quite had this experience. But they might have been the better for it, but yeah. this well, is different times. Possibly not, what? possibly not. But I mean, we that the type of thing. And I found going to Highbury was like, that special day on a Friday, we never trained in the pitch, very rarely did we train in the pitch. It was be the indoor facility, and then in the pitch we'd maybe just walk through a couple of moves. But as soon as you come down that, that tunnel, the dress rooms are, are unbelievable, just lovely big spacious dress rooms. The marble heated flooring, as people say. The pegs were virtually in the top of the roof. You had to step up to try and reach the peg. Kenny Sansom could hardly ever reach his peg, he was so small. And we used to always play games with that. But, uh, no, I, I loved the whole concept of how the atmosphere worked at Highbury. I mean, I was very fortunate because I was a very popular individual with the crowd. The North Bank liked me, Clock End liked me. Be a few in between that didn't, uh, who were a bit more precious, a bit more precise about how they wanted certain players. But that's the aspects of the game. But the tunnel, there was a halfway house down, and as you come down that long tunnel, for people who will recall the Vieira 
Roy Keane incident yeah. when the two of them are head to head, which is a dramatic and fabulous piece. Just halfway, five, ten yards back up, is the little players' lounge. That used to be a players' lounge up there. And we used to invite every away team. And we would pay for the bar and they could bring their friends and family and all that in there. So we had a lovely little social, maybe too social at times. <laughs> Highbury for me was, was just an instinctive love yeah. of what incorporated this old historic building that had seen some great players. I, I didn't really know the full history of Arsenal, but when I was there, the Joe Bakers and these type of players who had been Scottish and played in England and had good reputations, but Arsenal's pedigree of what it really was, it was known as quite aloof, but yet there was a bit of everything within our group. Irish, there was a few few Welsh, Welsh boys, uh, and of course, very few Scots. I was, I was the only one there at the time. But I, I loved the whole experience. I, I turning up at Highbury on the bus and walking in, and the doorman with a proper regalia and the whole thing coming in there, old Pete. And it's gone now. The, uh, well, That's the sad thing. But but you played a part in its farewell, which I didn't know. Well, I, I, was I, I did. This, this, you. yeah. Well, I'm I'm still a pretty hardcore Celtic fan. I've kind of lost a fabric of my spirit for it because of the way the club's run now. It's not the Celtic that I was kind of brought no. up with, and I. I'm adaptable. I know there's modern ways. I don't have a problem with that. I still wish the team every success. But I don't like a lot of what the people who run the current club do. And they're not very good at remembering a lot of the ex-players. I was standing up for some ex-players for a while that they were getting benefit dinners and these guys who were on 50, 60 grand a week were getting benefit dinners. And I'm saying, well, what about Tommy Callaghan and yeah. all these uh, different players that didn't get in? Dennis Conahan was mentioned. A lot of these guys are ill and not well and at least pay for an operation. And they don't like all... Oh, that type of talk, but I don't care. I'll put my neck on the line sometimes for the rights of what I believe in. So they don't really look after, I'm not just saying me, but a lot of the other ex-players that well. Whereas Arsenal invited me and my daughter to watch Arsenal's last European tie at Highbury against Juventus. Vieira was coming back. Henri was just probably just becoming the best Arsenal player I'd ever seen, if not becoming the best player in the Premier League mm -hmm. that I'd ever seen. And uh, Fabregas was just bubbling through the, in, in the background. And uh, I was invited on the pitch before the kick-off, when they were warming up, two or three questions. Everything, they gave me a Nicholas shirt again, gave my daughter a Nicholas shirt. It's extraordinary, uh, isn't it? And then we went back in and we, we were asked, we, we Frankie Dottori as an Arsenal fan, but yeah. he's mainly a Juventus fan. And the three is all signed the wall. But I, I asked them and said, would you mind if my daughter, Nadine, was to sign the wall? And they said, absolutely no problem. It'd be an absolute pleasure. See, and that's a club for me. But your anecdote supports this idea, because image and reality, which... I introduced, and I'm not being particularly mean about Ron Atkinson, but that was my problem about image and reality. And image and reality in football usually don't collide, they don't intersect. There are a lot of things in football where you'd like to believe in them, you believe in them, and then you're let down. Arsenal has this lifelong reputation about things should be done correctly, mm -hmm. that, that there are standards, that there are attitudes, and if Spurs fans are thrown up at the moment, this isn't, for me, an Arsenal fanboy, it is their reputation to see that fulfilled, to see that they thought well of you and remembered because you might have expected when you went down maybe maybe to have more trophies and more goals. But mm -hmm. I was going to leave this until later, but I'm on Twitter and there's a fella called um, Stephen Headley who when he found out you were on this, and I think this sums up what you talked about the fans in you, he said, I'm looking forward to hearing Bonnie Prince Charlie, a talent win at Arsenal. Boy, was he great. Maybe London was too big for the lad at that time. Douglas might have been better for him, but I'm glad I saw him in an Arsenal shirt. 
I mean, I think if you leave a legacy like that in, in your career and the club treat you well and they bring you back, then it, it's a statement about how you played. Mm -hmm. Before we leave Arsenal, do you have any memories? I think everyone knows you scored the winning goals against Liverpool in the, in the League Cup final in 87. But my memory is that the semi-final was utterly epic. The semi-final was three games against Spurs and they seemed to be some of the most dramatic football Mm -hmm. I, I can't remember if I watched them live, but my memory, my lying memory at this age, at my age, tells me I watched them all, that they're all live, and maybe not all of them were, but they were, do you remember the sequence of games, the three games against Spurs? The two of them were actually in the cup, because it was two-leg affair, and we'd played them just before that in the league, actually. I didn't know that. What happened was that, in my time, we'd always beaten Spurs, and I think that was part of fabric. I was getting a bit of extra love, <laughs> because I, I, my record against them was pretty good. But at that time, we were just starting to change because George Graham is now our manager and uh, talking about another subject player but Glenn Hoddle was as good as yeah. I've ever seen he was never English <laughs> he was never English he was he should have been he should have been one of us but and there was a little splinter of him in Chrissy Waddle in that side as well yeah and little was the ideal is yeah, they were a really good side they were good to play against but they were really good to watch yeah. me and Graham Ricks if Arsenal played on the Tuesday and Spurs were at home that midweek also Spurs were playing on Wednesday that's how they would work the police, so that the games could work. Me and Rixie would go and watch Spurs. We, we would, we'd get into Spurs. With protection? Well, we'd get into a box, because we, yeah. you couldn't take that risk. Yeah. But we'd love to go and see them. That's impressive. And Graham Ricks was big pals with Glenn Hoddle, because of yeah. England internationals. Yeah. But uh, Hoddle that night against us in the first leg, stunning. Absolutely stunning. And they beat us. They beat us well that night. And going back to the second leg, we still always knew we, we had a good chance. But we were going out. I'd actually been taken off. I'd struggled in the, in the away game. If I'm correct, I think it was Ian Allenson came on for me, who was a real good runner. And a late guy with pace could help you. And it proved to be the case. But there was two minutes to go, and uh, the Spurs announcer says to Spurs fans, the vouchers for the League Cup final will be going on sale after the match. And we heard this during the game. Whoops. Yeah, heard it during the game. And we all went, I was on the bench at the time, we all went, what? And two minutes later, Ian Allenson scored. And it was the most fantastic feeling you've ever had in your life. <laughs> Not just because it was a derby and we were through to the final, first final in eight years for Arsenal, but the way that the fabricate had taken yeah. place and taken yeah. shape, yeah. it was absolutely mad. Because it, it just got caught up in every emotion that we couldn't believe, and Josh Graham had obviously just came. Because I'd actually played in a London derby, I think it was two years before that. And after the game, this is how weird that derbies are. I mean, Celtic and Rangers is... I've never been to El Clasico, and it's the one thing I want in my life before I ever finish. Standing invitation here on the record, never to be well, taken I'll, back. Well, well I'll, I'll, I'll be straight on your case this season. But I played in London Derby, I've, I've been to Merseyside Derby, mm -hmm. and I've been to Manchester Derby. But there was something weird about London. They say, how hard should it? We finished, we beat Spurs one night, 2-1 at White Hart Lane. And Eamon Andrews came on with, this is your life for Pat Jennings. <laughs> I was like, this is a London derby, Eamon. Fuck it off. Honestly, no I, honestly, he did. That's he extraordinary. Come on. <laughs> kind of like special things. I mean, there was a superstar feel about both clubs because although Spurs... They were the flamboyant club. They had been, they had been winning European trophies, the double still. Well, yeah. the North London sides had both won the double, OK, Spurs previously. But when you, I suppose when you have, and not only did they have Hoddle and Waddle and our deal is, they'd had those run of the, the Coventry FA Cup finals with Stevie Archibald and the team. They'd stuck to a playing style which actually would have suited, you, suited you brilliantly. I, I, I was know. suited more to Spurs style. Yeah. 
that was a hard thing because when we played Spurs, the good thing is that they opened the game up. You know, they Tony Galvin on the left, yep. Stevie Archibald was brilliant from up front. Garth Crooks was very successful for him, but Hodo Ardiles in midfield, and they're quite aggressive at the back, you know, Graham Roberts and Stevie Perryman was still playing away, Paul Miller. But they were a very good side, good to watch. But we always knew we had the edge over them because Spurs had this cockiness about it, whereas Arsenal had a, a restraint on it. It was as if we will, we will agitate us. And that, that tended to be the, the situation, and it summed it all up when the announcer says, here's the vouchers for your cup final, boys, and, and we walk away and say, no, you won't. I'm not at all interested in nightlife in this question. I want to know what, for a, a young, beginning to be relatively well-off Glaswegian, what was the city of London like? What was life in London like in terms of them? The things that would attract all of us about, I don't know whether it was clothes shopping, whether it was live music, whether it was going to concerts, eating out, or just, I don't know if you're a fan of, I love to, in big cities, see the world go by because the world is the most extraordinary and curious thing. What was that experience like for you? Well, I'd been to London once in my life and we got battered 5-1 with England, Stuart Kennedy's day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, in those days, there were parents, ran a now, bus. That, sorry, that was you as a fan? Yeah. A uh, Tartan Army fan? Yeah. Sadly, it was the time of Bay City Rollers when we all had the Bay City Roller tartan oh, scarf. Shang yeah, yeah Shang and it... Scooby Doo and How Do You Do and oh, <laughs> White Skinners. So, uh, not, a, not a happy time. <laughs> but the, the, the parents who all drank in the local Maryhill pubs decided that they wanted to take the bus and the boys that were old enough would be taken down. And We actually stayed in a, a hotel in Kensington, which is not too far from where I, I sometimes live with Sky now. So, uh, it's... Quite a memory when I passed by there. But that's the only time I'd ever been to London. Mm -hmm. Furthest south I ever got for a holiday was, was I think, Rill. So it had nothing to do with cities or, or anything. It was just the fabric of what Arsenal were telling me they were trying to do to what eventually they did do was different. Yeah. They were talking about bringing Brady back from Italy. They were going after Ray Wilkins at, at Chelsea at the time. Oh, I'm beginning to understand what that would have yeah, supplied so the, your movement with. The, the fabric of where they were, they were talking about going. Yeah was changing the style of the club. Yeah. And that's what brought me into the fabric of the club. London itself, for about a year, maybe 15 months, was as lonely as a time as I've ever had. I found that hard to cope with. Mm -hmm. I had a pal who came down for a couple of months who was a joiner. He did a bit of work and then he got, he was a kind of home bird. So he went back to go south, did his job of work and got on with his life. And then eventually my sister, I lost last year, she was a massive football fan and she worked for a legal team. She was a PA and she came and lived with me for six years, six months. Sorry, she had a really good job, well paid, and mm -hmm. we lived together. She came to the football, loved her football, and that was a nice time. But I found it hard to try and educate myself into London. It's like you talk about watching the world go by now. I mean, I spend most of my time in Spain in the summer in Mallorca, but I did three days in Madrid two weeks ago, just city bus sitting watching the world goodbye. I've done Barcelona many times, which is my favourite city. Uh, and I love going and seeing all this, but when you're 21 and the invites are coming through the post, there's a party and here's yeah. another party. Yeah. There's a music party. And I love my music. The one thing I did love more than anything else other than football was music. So Haircut were 100 were out and yeah. the Spandau Ballet boys were across the road in a, a restaurant and then you would meet a drummer from Boy George's band to John who was an Arsenal fan and you would bump into them, it'd be another party, another party, another party. Now, I was going to these parties maybe on a Tuesday or Wednesday, but they were in the papers on a Saturday morning. Yeah. <laughs> so I was nailed yeah. back to rights and the gaffer would say to me, was you out last night? No, I wasn't out last night, I was out Wednesday night and I've trained two days since then, so you know, it's not as if I was out 
on the lag. I like my drink, but I've also been a fantastic trainer. I've always loved my training. There's not doubt in the old days because of lack of education and being taught properly. We're at Wenger and all the modern guys do now. Is it be overindulged? Of course we did, because that was just something that you weren't. And at that club, it's established that there was a culture there. There was a culture there because, again, we, we weren't. You had to look after yourself. And like now they've got agents and different guys and they're fitness gurus and, and they're told and have this and have that. It's a single soft excuse, but it was a reality of life at the time. And when you're 21 and you're lonely and you're trying to meet new pals outside your teammates, because I've always thought it was really more important. You train with these guys and you play and you live and die with them. But at the same time, you must have other friends that you can go to that gets you away from it. To clear, clear your you head have, of them. You have to have that. Yeah. And I always kept that when I was a, a Glasgow boy. To go to London and nobody, it was like really, really weird. Eventually I did learn how to handle it and meet other people. And had a great time. But the club itself could not have helped me more. In the end, I was going back and saying, look, I'm finding it hard. It's, it's lonely. I don't know what, what to do. I'm invited That's to a smart parties. thing to do. In the West of Scotland, we're not very good at, at opening up. Yeah, I can't, okay. I can't hold it in. I've never been that type. I just take him out. I don't, I don't see any point in holding on to an issue. If, if, you, if you can share it with you'd agree with me that we don't do that well in this no part we of don't the world. And we, Scots we, 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 we keep it inside yeah. don't we it's hard to be seen shown maybe a relatively soft side but I just always felt that way and they were helpful but Paul Marner was a great help to me Pat Jennings was a good help good man Graham Ricks was a good pal and Kenny Sansom also was and I'm sad to see like, people like Kenny Aye. having wee issues now but all you can do is wish them well but yeah it was London, at times, I, I wouldn't have said it was my happiest place, but yet, see now, if you ask me, because I know so much about it. It's an extraordinary place, I love isn't it. it? It's an addictive place. It's a, it's like this. I feel when I go there, it's like being in the centre of the world. Yeah. And it's exciting and the history. Like you talked about taking the bus around Barcelona, which when we moved there, we suddenly developed lots of friends who wanted to come. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't know they were so close to us and must have been on that bus tour about 20 times in the first six months. But now I'll do, so I'll go on the river cruises at the Thames. And it's history fascinates me. And yeah. Londoners fascinate me. And that would be my favourite city. In the yeah, I'm, well, I'm the same because uh, when I go down, like, my Oyster card, and I, I know I can get the, the 237 into White City. And You're I'm, a man I know for your buses. Doing. You're a man for your well, buses. Well, I'm a man for my buses and my, and my tube. I love to travel that way. I, th I think you learn more. I think you see more. In see, London, as you know, hardly anybody you see incredible you. things. Yeah. You know, I was banned for driving when I first went to, to Arsenal. So... I stayed in digs with John Lukic, who was a goalkeeper, so he would drive me to training and drive me back. But if I wanted to go somewhere, John wasn't much out. He was a car freak for Yorkshire, right? So I wanted to go. I would, I would say, well, where's the bus? How'd you I get was in? making a few bob, but I wasn't wealthy. And I'm not paying 30, 40 quid for a taxi. <laughs> I'm a Scots. I'm a Scots man in, in, in there. I don't mind spending my money, but it has to be for the right no, I hear reasons. it. I hear it. So I, I like all that. It's always been part of your fabric, watch. And I think you see so much more. No, you see the strangest things, and it also makes me happy to see life go by. Yeah. You've talked a little bit about atmosphere and the training ground and the dressing room and the unity and whatever. If we skip beyond the, what I call the glory years at Pataudry, if we go to, um, for those who can't see, Charlie is smiling indulgently, inside his head he's saying, stop it. If we could go to Soccer Saturday, I, I know it's everybody works for a salary, so they pay you to do it. But And also it's clear that it's a clinically researched showing that Jeff Stelling, the host, is very, very talented. But I have a theory that the, you know, the fun that the five of you have, but the four ex-pros, it, 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 does it recreate something that all sportsmen and women lose when they stop competing is the banter, the nonsense, mm. the digging of the dressing room and the training room. 
Is that part of what attracts you four to it as exposing Could it be part of what the audience love? Because they know they're seeing something like if you lifted the lid of a good dressing room and you yeah. saw all the chat. We always find it hard to break down. I've never been more popular when I'm in London. You go through the airports and everybody's, what game are you doing today? And you're like, what game are you doing tomorrow? You go through Glasgow. And it's like, they're fascinated by it. We don't quite understand it. We often say it's like being in the pub with your mates, talking about the game without having a beer or a glass of wine. First and foremost, I mean, this is my 18th year of doing this show. I've been with Sky. So I've been there a long time and I've come through Rodney Marsh, who was very interesting. <laughs> a very, very much... Col- colourful and forthright. Yes, very, it was a very interesting subject. I actually, people always say that there's certain characters I, would, I wouldn't get on with because I've got quite a happy, outgoing personality. But I always seem to get somebody who's quieter and they, they don't expect to be my mate. I don't know how it works. Uh, they thought Graham Ricks would be a, a little bit like that with me in England, and he wasn't. Pat Jennings, and he wasn't. You know, invited to dinner on a few occasions by, by Pat. Wally Miller at Aberdeen. And everybody went, don't ask Wally to go for a pint. <laughs> Buffalo, you come from... And, and it's just one of those, if you don't ask... He's quite you know, a hard man, demanding yeah, man. but so. you never find out if you don't ask, do you? There's nothing blasé about it. It's just simply, you know... Do you find another mate? Yeah. And uh, these type of things went on more and more as as I was getting older and just a fabric of a life changing. Mm-hmm. I think, and I try to understand what sometimes people see in us in Soccer Saturday. We find each other interesting. We do like to argue with each other, mm-hmm. and it's not a it's not cover up. Yeah, you know, if, if there's a debate going, it's a genuine debate. My favourite is Phil Thompson because I've never known a man who's in his sixties be such a kid and so passionate about his club than he is. Tomo and I share a car going back to the airport after the show, and if Liverpool don't win, he doesn't speak to me. <laughs> he don't, he just <laughs> don't speak to me. And I don't know if it's personal, but uh, I don't take it as, but this is the type of things, Jeff, I, Cammy, in particular, and Tomo, we all meet on a Friday at our hotel, we have a couple of drinks, we don't talk about the show, mm-hmm. we just talk about life, we talk about families, we talk about anything. Saturday just seems to click. So I, I don't know. I, but I would say one thing about it is that we are all blessed as ex-players to be on that show because mm. it's, we're getting paid for something we dearly love. And of course, if the fans don't see anything and they're still listening to us harbour and on, letting a radio show. But the genius of it all is Jeff. He's a great guy as much as he's a great presenter. But he's also, for years and years, Graham, we, I wasn't a big believer in it, but a lot of the guys that I've worked in the media with, I'd always say, oh, you're a journalist, so what, what do you really know about it? And I found that quite weird because I would think there's a lot of journalists that I was brought up with who were more social than they are with the modern terms now that I found very interesting guys and very interesting knowledge of the game and to read your books, for instance. But the old-fashioned guys. And I always thought, well, hold on a minute. Why can't a journalist have no knowledge of football? Who are the new modern concept great managers? Did they play football well? Mm. And it's always proved the point. Jeff has a great knowledge of football Mm -hmm. because he loves it. It's a big compliment. I, I understand that, I mean, he works very hard. It takes his responsibility seriously, which in any walk of life, if you research, if you practice, if you're dedicated to it, then you'll, whatever talent you have will come out better. And another thing that I appreciate, although it's a side bet to what you've been talking about, is the wit. There's a lot of wit. Mm-hmm. A lot of quick minds there and quick tongues. And I swear again that part of the reason we wanted to do these podcasts is that those of you that we admire, you're very different people than are portrayed on the pitch. Naturally, I mean, again, if you had your doubts about why journalists might not be decent company or might be educated about football, 
the three of us, Martin and Neil, are here, the, the guys who came up with this concept, we know that you're not one-dimensional people. That there is a huge amount of variety and wit and interest in, in footballers who are either just playing, not playing, or on television. And I find that about you, that the four of you convey a side of football that I think we hear about wit and banter and fun, allied to good, strong points of view about the game. That's a yeah. potent mix. It is very much a, a kiddies football and dressing room, and that's what footballers are. We've always had the, the childish wit. I mean, at Arsenal, I was there three months. I, I wasn't shy when I first went in. I was, you know, why would I be holding back? No. Get in there, meet the guys, how are you doing? And I was sick to death after two months that they kept saying, could you slow down a bit? Could you slow down a bit? Could you slow down? <laughs> and uh, I just kept going. And eventually I did slow down a little bit. But for three months, I kept cutting David Leary's socks. I just kept cutting holes in And every day, it, he knew it was me. But he could never catch me. <laughs> and eventually he would give in. And, and after three months, I kinda, I've made my impression with him to soften him a bit, to say, you know, I'm here. You can talk to me. I'm approachable. And I became quite pally with him after a while. I enjoy that and I like it. And I wish that, uh, you know, I'd, if I could swap anything, it wouldn't be the millions of the current footballers. It would be the enjoyment of the, the, the social bond that if mm. you get in a good dressing room. I, I've had the good fortune to chance into Football Club Barcelona, which I know you admire, but... Oh, yeah. Spanish football too. I, I look at the, the Spain football team and because of diligence, maybe rather than talent, they've let me in a little bit. They've opened the doors, they've allowed me into dressing rooms, into training camps, into hotels. And what I see about them, both the Spain national team and Barcelona, less so Real Madrid because Real Madrid tends to chop and change and the core players, which have been reduced by Casillas, been pushed out. Core players at Real Madrid, it's a smaller number of guys who are there because they've been there for a long time or they've come through the system of the Madrid fans. So there's a difference between Spain and Barcelona. But I, I've noticed that how they approach football, how they approach their work, their, their clear-headedness about what they want to achieve, their bond to each other. These are things that are extraordinary. And I wonder, from a distance, what you most appreciate about what you've seen over the last, let's call it the last eight, nine, ten years in Spanish football, the national team, or Madrid, or Valencia, or Sevilla, or Barcelona. What are the things that, as a football lover, attract you and turn you on? I think for the underachievers for so long in Spanish concept, and I hear it a lot in England now, and the FA are all saying, oh, we need a, a quarter of players that we should be in, and the Italians tried it years ago, when there can only be three people representing the team. No country seems to have embraced it better than the Spanish mm. I mean, in the last 10 years. I'm not just talking about Messi, because he's a genius of all geniuses, in my opinion. But it's how they adapt their, their game philosophy. And I think you're intrigued inside that when I read stuff. Is that somebody like Xavi can have a strong influence mm -hmm. within a dressing room. But he has to have somebody above him who believes in that. And I think the Spanish manager proved that he could, he could take that on board. But it really started with Cruyff and then it was worked in. And, but he kept the Dutch team. I mean, Rijkaard wasn't a major success, but it, it was the right thing for Barca. But it's how they've in, introduced all the different other styles from all over the world to say... We can make that help us grow as a nation. And I think that's what I've taken on the concept of where they do. Just last week in Mallorca, Del Bosque was doing coaching session and with his name on it, he didn't do it, but they had four really good coaches. And my nephew was over, so he did five days with him, the three boys from Stirling. And I only seen one day, but it was tremendously different how they had interest that concept of running with the ball. Mm -hmm. When I was brought up in Scotland, the concept of the most exciting players were the guys who ran with the ball. Spanish have now got that. Why? What, what have we missed out? We're a smaller nation, I know that, but it's how they adapted to everything and took it straight on the chin and said, we can make this work 
and be a reality because we have the talent. But if you don't believe in the talent and the short yeah. and the frail, the Iniestas of this world, and don't eventually say, now, was it Pep who eventually said, I'm going with it, I've got nothing to worry, or did the Spanish thing as, an, as a nation then say, we finally got... Because Aragonis was quite a hard man. Very, very. When it comes across to me, and he portrays as a hard man. I love Fabregas. Mm -hmm. He's not everybody's favourite. Mm. I think he'll get a hard time at Chelsea, just because he, he's probably still an Arsenal fan. But the real greats, the Iniestas and the Javis and the, the real little add-ons, they say, some people in our countries would say, oh, I get 600 passes, but they don't really go anywhere. Well, they're going to go somewhere eventually, aren't they? Mm -hmm. they are going to, they're going to go to better players. Mm -hmm. They're going to go to guys who, when I was younger, would say, can you give me maybe a hundred a day passes, Mr Xavi? So I just love the whole thing that they've seen a reality, worked on what comes to the country and said, we can make this work for us. You've, you've, you've neatly done a loop because you talked about them not having faith in you after a few good games at Arsenal where there was a couple of bad results. And you're pinpointing there twice that Pep Guardiola had to have faith in restoring the passing game, had to have faith that Messi could be brought in and put in a centre-forward mm. position, even though he's pocket-sized. Luis Aragonés saying, I have total faith in Xavi, that three years ago I was saying, get the ball quickly, fast, powerful, we can never play passing football. He comes in, he sees them and he has faith in them because I've changed my mind completely. I want to build everything around you. Is that, is that the key element that this, com it doesn't explain everything, but that this conversation is based on that nurture talent, but when you find it, have faith. Danny had, I mean, there's another theme. You know, this guy who, if people were misinformed about Danny, they might say he was a destroyer, that he broke games down because he was a very good tackler, he was a defender, but he had the vision enough to say to Billy McNeil, trust this young fella. Mm -hmm. Is that what we're taking out of this conversation, of trust and faith? Well, it's, 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 it's my version of it. My version of it is that if you look at and train me, players and you see that there's two or three better than the rest of the group. Predominantly those players will be creative, advanced players. Why would you want to waste them? Mm. I want to see them. I would want to say, well, they're my best players for a reason, so they should play. Not they're my most average players or he can run quicker, he's stronger. That can come. You can add a little bit to that. But if I have got a perception of football the way I see it, the way that I've listened to Cruyff and the guys that I like to speak about and, and listen to, then I could only go with the philosophy for me, which is if they are better than other players in, the, in your group, then you have to play them. And that tends to always be the creative players. We still have a lot of talent in Scotland, as in kids. I know they've got other aspects of they can walk away from football and they've got too many other games to play and different things. But And we do it at the lower levels in Scotland still. We will sub the skillful guy, to get the runner on. And it, it becomes a desperate plan. So you'll never trust the creative side. But I just love the whole mentality of what Barcelona have done, as said to Spain and other managers. You might not always like this tic-a-tacker or whatever you want to call it, but if you believe in it and we, we know how to work it, it can be a success. This, this is no advert for me to Sky for them. You know, I don't work, I'm just a freelance when they bring me in. It's nice. I fervently believe that for the quality of football in England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, the fact that Sky have been pumping La Liga into our living rooms for 19 years will gradually have an effect on her coaches that make those wrong substitutions or coaches who develop our players or youngsters who like. I'm being told one thing by my teacher or my coach, but I know, I've seen it on television. I, I know how, not just Barcelona and Real Madrid play, but I know how Valencia play and how Sevilla play. And I know that I admire those with technique and whether it's Valeron or whether it's Pique can control the ball and play it beautifully as a defender. That's why I think Spanish football will, will give us a legacy. It's like an injection of talent. We're going to close. 
um, because I've taken about a day of your time. Um, the sun's still up. <laughs> it's only it's, a day. It's tanning weather in the west end of Glasgow. But if you'll indulge me, just the League Cup final against Rangers, Aberdeen, your part in our glory. Um, the memories it? of that era and why the hell you went back to the side that did nothing but kick you for about <laughs> 10 years as a junior or a reserve and a first team player well in all honesty am I offering an oil rig <laughs> did we offer an oil rig if only if I, if I was to get one Willie Miller was get the same deal <laughs> no no two definitely <laughs> yeah, two yeah. in all honesty I didn't I didn't really look that I, I was interested in going back to Aberdeen the reason the reason being I always felt that the right thing for me was eventually Europe yeah and uh, I'd went to Toulon spoken to Toulon and Nice over a fine dinner and a nice bottle of wine, uh, we were Arsenal treasurer called Ken Fryer and uh, my agent. And we'd agreed in principle I would go there and play in Toulon and went back and George Graham and myself. George was into discipline, but he over-exaggerated. You asked for a meet me, George, and George was running a mile. He wasn't a disciplinarian. He, he disciplined you in front of the players, but not have a meeting with you afterwards, you know. So uh, that was George. So I always asked for a meeting. Brian Clough tried to take me to Notts Forest and Jim Smith was trying to take me to Derby and George wouldn't have any he just he cancelled my, my deal with Toulon Worried about you coming back? Or you... Well I, I possibly but the Toulon thing made sense because I wasn't going to be seeing him Fair, fair But fair he, 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 he knew I was going to be living in, in Nice it was just like it was as if he was so jealous I'm not letting him go that's too nice for him <laughs> so he, he kiboshed it and said oh no I might use him yeah, he kiboshed it and I couldn't believe it I never got a meet with him afterwards in fact, I've seen him in Sky a few years later, but I still never spoke to him. But uh, so in the end, I just I was three months into the season, and then he was sending me to Cambridge University with a third team, and I was sitting on the bench, and just ridiculous how he did that. As I say, we never had a conversation, so there's no fallout. Uh, and then I, I just said, I just want to go and play. Go play, right? So I had to see his number two was a guy Steve, Steve Burtonshaw, who was his dealer. In terms of who was in, who was out, he would see who's happy, who's not. And I said, "Well, I just want to go. I just want, just I just want out here." And then they blocked those moves, uh, and I'd heard about those moves, and he, he denied them. And then in December there was talk about Aberdeen, and I thought, "I, I just need, I need to get. I don't want to go out of the club, but I could see that George was building something, which was going in a, maybe in a different and way." And I knew my 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 time had come, and I'm not one for hanging about. It was a conversation with old Dick Donald. It was a stunning old man. <laughs> Manager was weird, God rest him, Ian Porterfield. He was quite unpredictable, was fieldy. Yep. But still the history and the fabric of the club was still a club of intense interest to me. And more importantly, they were still letting Miller and McLeish all there. So the fabric of the club was still with the right people. So I don't think I was ever actually taking a gamble because the one thing I always wanted to prove if I was coming back, even for a two-year, two-and-a-bit-year spell, was that I could still win things. And that was the most important thing to me. I did find it hard to adapt in the first six months or so. But the turning point for me at Aberdeen was Gilhouse. Mm. Gilhouse was just tremendous stunning for me. Football. Oh, yeah. tremendous for me. Yeah. Great athlete, nice enough guy, mm -hmm. quiet, but I could bring out the best in him and he could bring out the best in me in the field. And it was a career changer, Hans Gilhouse signing for me. It got me back believing in what I was doing was the right things. I was never going to be prolific then. But I was scoring important goals again, and that was the issue of that. But the Rangers win with Paul Mason getting the two goals and me setting them up for the winner was a big, big statement for us because we'd blew the one the year before when I first came. We should have beat Rangers that day. David Robertson gave away the crazy penalty. Yeah. So it could have been three titles, but we should have pushed more for the league. But I was really, really pleased with my time. I built a house in Peter Cooter. I really loved Aberdeen. I settled in well. 
and the fans took, they always knew I was a Celtic fan. When I scored against it, I never celebrated, but they knew exactly. But the cheer for winning the Scottish Cup when I knew I was leaving was at the Town Hall was just... One of penalties. That was, that, yeah, that was a choker. Yeah, good. That was a choker for me. There, there's something you've pinpointed there, and I think it's the reason, as we close, that we were desperate. We were so pleased when you said yes, and Neil was chatting to you and said, oh, Charlie's quite keen. I was like, the world's turning the wrong way. He should be saying, well, all right, maybe, because this is a treat for us. But I said at the start, and I'll repeat it again, and I'll probably say in the intro when we record it afterwards, you know, it's nice to meet your talent, you know, somebody who improved our lives, you know, because football is as important as breathing in and out. And when you see quality in somebody that you can be proud of and enjoy, whether it's Scotland or Arsenal, Celtic or Aberdeen, it's a real joy. And you said at Arsenal, there were some who maybe were keen on you and some who did it, but the majority loved you irrespective of the fact that it was one trophy in that time. And at Aberdeen, a Celtic man, doesn't matter. He's ours for the moment and he's good to watch. That's what we try and do in these podcasts. Mm -hmm. People who love the game, people who've been great to watch, evidently still love the game. Great to watch in your day, great to listen to it at the moment. I regard this as a privilege. Well, I, I take it the same way. I mean, and I'm still a great believer of the fans are still the most important people in the world of football, and that's what makes us all still smile and love it. Well, they're listening. A good, fair few of them are listening at the moment, and it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Matt. Listen quiet at the back, you... At the end of these, I like to do a little test to make sure that you've been paying attention and not talking over Charles and I. So there was a hint that despite similar birth dates, one of us looks younger and the other older. Who did you think it was? Yeah, me. It was a really enjoyable hour and a bit with a man that I admire and like still more than before we started it. I hope you feel the same way. Now, if you'd like to hear more about the podcasts and get exclusive updates on forthcoming episodes, and I know you do, because you're always asking me on Twitter for that kind of info, then follow at GH Podcast on Twitter. And even more importantly, if you want first shot at the downloads and the interviews, head to grahamhunter.tv and sign up to our mailing list. We'll keep you in touch. Thanks very much to the Hotel Duvan. I want to be careful about not always saying that we're in the most beautiful and glamorous locations and that's why we've cited this in the West End of Glasgow. But the hotel is utterly exceptional. We've been treated, quite rightly, like royalty. Thank you to Beer Jacket for Snowball, the music that you hear in this. The albums are fantastic. Find Beer Jacket on Bandcamp and listen to it. This podcast is produced by Backpage and by me and edited by Alex Adie. Thanks for being there. Charlie said during the interview that the fans are still the most important people in the game. I hope we're fellow fans of people like Charlie and lives spent like his. See you soon.